Grab a Bible and join me in John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back on the table right there, the connection table. It says connect here. Uh, feel free to get up, grab one of those. I'll be preaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, it's our typical um, translation that we preach from. And so I'm going to be in 8, 12 through 30. 8, 12 through 30. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the big numbers are the chapters. The little numbers are the verses. So you can follow along as we look at God's Word. John chapter 8, verse 12. I'm going to read this section of Scripture for us. I'm going to ask God's help, and then we will uh, look at this text together this morning. So John chapter 8. Verse 12 reads this. Oh, drop my pen here. Would you hear the word of God? Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about my, myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you were from below, I am from above. You were of this world I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let us go to the Lord and ask for his help this morning. Father, thank you so much for your kindness, for your mercy, for the opportunity to sit together, gather together this morning as brothers and sisters through the blood of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this narrative, this story, Lord, would you help us to be united to each other as we become even more aware of the beauty of our Savior? Father, I ask that anyone in here that does not know you would see Jesus clearly today. I pray that you would use this passage, this sermon, for our good and your glory. And simply I ask what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not you would make us, what we have not you would give us, by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. So today we find ourselves in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. It's a large section of Scripture. And there are probably some of you that are very attentive that are wondering, well, why did we just skip over the section of Scripture above it? Why are we skipping John 7, 53 through 8, 11? And I'm going to just spend a few minutes talking about why I am not preaching that text here. If you look in your Bibles, most of your Bibles probably have some brackets or or something in it, maybe a footnote or something that says something like, uh, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And this means that this passage is absent from the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. Um, It basically shows that although John's gospel uh, is, since John's gospel was copied from original manuscripts, uh, when they go back and look, uh, this portion is not in the earliest ones. This story actually doesn't show up until probably the fourth or fifth century. Uh, John's gospel was written in the first century. So most people believe that uh, this story about the woman caught in adultery is likely historical, accurate, and truthful event that actually happened. Uh, There's many people that believe that. Um, But because it's not in the original manuscripts, um, just out of my pure just convictions, uh, I don't want to preach it. Um, Because anything that we preach, I would say we want to make sure it is definitely the Word of God. Uh, So the authority that we present in preparing and preaching a message uh, should only come from God's Word and God's Word alone. And so since there are some questions about this text, uh, I've chosen not to preach it uh, today. A couple things just to make note of here is that whether or not this text is included in the original manuscripts or is indeed the inerrant word of God, uh, it has zero effect on any major Christian doctrine, anything that we would say is something that we hold firm. It really doesn't 
uh, present any type of truths that are new or contradict anything else in the Bible. Um, and because of this, publishers have decided to continue including this story in John with a footnote that states is something like you just read. And I want to give us just two quick reasons why this should actually encourage us and help us to trust our Bibles, the ones that we have, even more. So one, this shows that our Bibles are honest. It shows that what we have here is an honest Bible. Uh, if someone's trying to hide something, they usually don't give you the, oh, well, actually, they don't include what they don't really understand. They, they don't say, well, we don't know if this is a part, but I'm going to include it anyway. The, the Bible here is upfront about this. Uh, it doesn't, uh, the Bible tells us where there are discrepancies, right? And so that should encourage us to trust what we see here. This also reminds us that we have in our day and time, we have something to compare our modern day translations to. We have manuscripts. We have copies of the Bible. Um, in fact, there are more copies, manuscripts of God's Word than there are of any other historical document ever. Uh, there are over probably 6,000 or more surviving Greek manuscripts, uh, which are copies. Uh, and that's including some fragments and full renderings dating from A.D. 125 to 130 or so. So anyway, all, all that to say, it's, uh, we have some copies that are right there connected to the originals that we can trust, that we can look back to, that we can compare notes to. And so with that, it's very helpful for us to remember that what we do have is true. It comes from the original of what was originally given to the writers. Uh, one scholar states, the bottom line is that the books of the New Testament are the most reliably copied and handed down documents in the history of the world. With a high degree of confidence, we can reconstruct the very word of the authors over 99% of the time. It's pretty good. Sometimes it's hard to interpret someone's text messages. And in the remaining 1%, we can always determine what it is that the author likely wrote. End quote there. So, like I said, because this story, which is probably true, historically accurate, is not found in the original copies, we are not going to preach it. If you have more questions about textual variants and other things, uh, there are a lot of uh, smart people, a lot of scholars around here, uh, and I would be, I'm not a scholar by any means, uh, but consider myself a theologian because I study God's Word. We are all theologians. We all have a theology of God. It just how much do you uh, work on that theology, um, but uh, we'd be happy to talk uh, with you. But with all of that in mind and kind of clearing up the why are we passing over this major section of Scripture that you've probably heard preached before, that you've probably read before, you've maybe been, been encouraged before, and I'm not saying that anybody's wrong for doing that, just said convictionally I uh, will not. I want to turn to our section of Scripture today. So I have four points I'm going to make under the title, Jesus, the light of the world. Uh, pretty simple if you've read this passage before, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. 
So Jesus, the light of the world. And let me just go ahead and put this uh, out there too. The first point is going to be the longest. We're probably going to spend about 90% of our time looking at point number one, okay? Uh, This is narrative. And so it's important that we look uh, primarily at what Jesus has said here. Now, we're going to see the response of this crowd that now respond to Jesus' claim that he makes. And we'll look at that, but we'll not exegete that section of uh, Scripture as long as I do with just verse 12 uh, simply. So about 90% of our time on point one, probably 10% of our time on the last three. Let me give you the points. Number one, we'll see a monumental claim. A monumental claim. Two, the authority of Jesus to make the claim. The authority of Jesus to make this claim. Third, the origin of Jesus to support this claim. The origin of Jesus to support this claim. And finally, we will see the destiny of Jesus that affirms this claim. So the destiny of Jesus affirms the claim that he makes in verse 12. All right, so that framework in mind, let's look at this text. First, we see this monumental claim in verse 12. And Jesus, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, here it's important to note that Jesus is still speaking in the context of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, And he's speaking publicly because, again, we see a variety of responses that follow this monumental claim. I mean, even just uh, this is another reason why I think that uh, this, uh, the story about the woman caught in adultery is not uh, in the original manuscripts and should not be placed here because really the connection, uh, he speaks to them. Again, if Jesus is just left alone with this woman, who is the them that he's speaking to? So we see that he's still in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's still speaking publicly here. And this proclamation that Jesus has just presented to this crowd is just chock full of implications that teach us some very glorious truths here. But first, I think it's important to lay the backdrop to Jesus's claim because it's important to recognize his placement and timing are not coincidental here. Per usual, Jesus times this monumental claim perfectly as he uses his environment as kind of an illustrative purpose for his truth. If you look down at verse 20, you will see that Jesus makes the claim in the treasury. Okay, now this is not just a a detail of coincidence. John tells us this for a reason. See, during the Feast of Tabernacles, there were two grand ceremonies. One was the pouring out of the water. Remember, we looked at that a few weeks back. The other was called the illumination of the temple. And the illumination of the temple took place in the treasury at the beginning of the feast. 
And during this celebration, during the illumination of the temple, there were four massive torches that were set up in the center of the treasury. And at the top of these golden candlesticks were these enormous bowls that were, they held about 65 gallons of oil here. There was a ladder for each of these torches. And in the evening, young, healthy priests would carry oil up to the top and refill the, uh, the um, bowls. They would light the wick on top of these massive torches. And as they lit the wicks of these torches, great flames erupted out of the torches. And it would illuminate the temple and then much of Jerusalem. I mean, it was a, a spectacle to see. It was something spectacular that people noticed. They saw what was going on. Early Jewish writers say that this ceremony was breathtaking. The Mishnah, which is an official collection of Jewish oral traditions, describes what happened after the torches were lit. I quote, Men of piety and good works used to dance before them with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and instruments of music, end quote. So this was a part of the festival that just drew a lot of attention here. And what this celebrated was the great pillar of fire that led the people of Israel during their sojourn in the wilderness. If you remember in Exodus 13, it tells us that there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's how the Israelites were guided through the wilderness, through their time in darkness. It is with this backdrop in the treasury, with the large, probably uh, charred torches still in place that Jesus chooses to proclaim, I am the light of the world. It's like, it's me. It is me. All of this points to me. I mean, there could hardly be a more dramatic way to announce one of the most important realities of Jesus' existence here. With that backdrop in mind, let's just look at this monumental claim of Jesus Christ. I mean, first we see the second of the I am statements of Jesus. Uh, this phrase, I am, reflects Exodus 3.14, where God introduces himself to Moses with the, express, the expression, I am who I am. Like, I am. I'm it. The one. I'm, I'm, I'm everything. Anything you can think of, I am. Anything that you can think of that's perfect, that's holy, that is everything you've ever wanted, it is me. So Jesus now uses these I am statements to display his preexistent deity, his preexistent glory to this Jewish audience. And what he's doing is just communicating that he himself is God. I mean, we've seen this over and over in this gospel account. And here Jesus says, I am 
the light. So what does Jesus mean by this? Now remember, the illumination of the temple was a celebration that commemorated God's presence with the Israelites when they were in the darkness of the wilderness. So here, Jesus is making this this connection to this recent celebration. And he's saying, I am the very presence of God because I am God. And just as the light brought deliverance for the Israelites during their sojourn in the wilderness, I am here to bring deliverance for my people in the darkness of this dark world. If you recall, this is not the first time the theme of light has been presented in John's gospel. In John 1.4 we read, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. In John 1, 9, John writes, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That was in the prologue where we're getting this beautiful picture of, of Jesus Christ coming and his incarnation. And then John writes in John three nineteen through 21, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. The people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates what? The light. They don't like the light. It says they don't come to the light because they don't want their works to be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. It's, it's okay. They understand what the light does. They, they know they need exposure. But it's not just the New Testament that speaks of this need for light. The Old Testament promised that light would come to a world full of darkness as well. Isaiah 42.6 is one of the clearest references of that. Isaiah the prophet writes, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. We're being told here, there's a light that's going to come. There's someone that will come. There's something that will happen. There's a deliverer. You're lost in darkness, but light will come. So what does this repeated reference of light in the Bible teach us? I mean, how does this apply to us even today? Well, I mean, simply put, this teaches us that humanity is inherently full of darkness since sin entered the world in Genesis 3. I mean, since the fall of man, since sin entered into the world, there's darkness within humanity. But Jesus Christ is different. He's drastically different. He is completely distinct from anyone who has ever walked this earth. Listen, Jesus Christ has no equal. There is none like him. Jesus Christ is light in the darkness. Church, isn't there something special about a star in the sky that causes one to kind of appreciate the beauty of light? Or... Even more dramatic is a full moon that's just perfectly 
placed and positioned in a dark sky, wonderfully lighting the earth in a unique and somewhat peaceful kind of way. Even greater, the brightest and most intense demonstration of light, think of a sunrise that, that breaks into the dark sky, gradually invades and pushes darkness away until there's nothing to observe but the beauty and the radiance of the sun. But listen, even with all the luminous beauty of the sun, moon, and stars combined, they do not begin to scratch the surface of the splendor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who says, I am the light. doesn't even begin pale in comparison. The beauty of Christ The God-man who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death so we could be free from darkness. And listen, it's not enough to just acknowledge that Jesus is the light. We read that this reality demands a response. He doesn't just say, I am the light, period. Look at the text. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus essentially says here, there, there must be some action now. In order to receive the benefits of this light, we must take Action. J.C. Ryle states here in commenting on this passage, I quote, following is the point on which all turns. It is not enough to gaze upon and admire the light. We must follow it, end quote. We are told that those who follow the light, or in other words, those that believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and then follow him as their Lord will not walk in darkness and will have the light of life, which means they will be redeemed from their bondage to darkness presently and eternally. There is positional effects present effects of following Jesus, but there are eternal effects. But this is a promise that we must grab hold to. And brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, this is a promise that man, you can cling to, you can trust, you can rest upon this Savior. But this is a promise that these Pharisees do not like. So they challenge Jesus. They, they question him. They question his authority to make such a monumental claim. And so we then see Jesus' authority to make this claim in verses 13 through 20. 
So in verse 13, in response to what has just been said, the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now stop there for a second and, and just take note here of what's happening. I mean, the Pharisees are just they're calling Jesus a liar here. They're saying, yeah, we don't believe that. <laughs> we don't believe what you're saying. What you are saying is not true. And, and then they point to the law that stated the testimony could only be true if it were made by two or more witnesses. Say the law says this. And basically what they're saying is that Jesus has no authority to make the claim that he has just made. Saying, well, what you're saying, since you're alone, it does not stand. We don't believe you. You are wrong. And so here's what Jesus says. Verse 14, Jesus answers. It's just the rest, of, it's just back and forth. And then John adds some commentary here for the rest of this passage. Jesus answers, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So Jesus here is bringing up a reality that has already been spoken about in chapter 5 when he talks about the authority that was given to him by his father. If you are a member of the church and you've been uh, with us in this study, you probably recall uh, that passage. And he just shows them here again. He says, listen, you have no idea who I am. You, you have no idea about my authority. You have no idea of anything about me because guess what? You don't know my father. You claim to know God, but you do not. And then in 15, he goes on. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now listen, Jesus is not saying that he does not judge anyone. We see in the next verse that he has all authority to judge. What he's saying here is that he does not judge in the way that they judge according to the flesh. Or in other words, to the human uh, way of judging things. The way of looking and feeling something out in a way that you don't get to the heart of what is there. He says, I don't judge in worldly ways. You do, though. You judge according to the flesh. And then he goes on in 16. He says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So, I mean, here Jesus just, he's, he's bringing up, the, so they, they brought a charge. They said, yep, you, you don't have witnesses. The law says you must have witnesses. And Jesus says, like, actually I do. I have witnesses here. The, the formal conditions of what the law says, well, actually, I, I'm in, I align with that. The Father and the Son. 
We bear witness about each other. So there are always two witnesses here to anything that Jesus says. He says, listen, the claims I make, they, it's not just myself. The authority that I have is not based upon myself alone. He points everything again back to the Father. And this states the obvious, right? I mean, two divine eternal witnesses far surpass their human limitations. And their human limitations are hindering their ability to see the truth here. And I just want to make a point here that, man, we really see here that it takes a work of God to see the truths of Jesus. I mean, if you are a Christian today, give praise to your Savior, that God would regenerate and change your heart, that you would be able to see past the human eyes, and that he would give you a spiritual heart to see the things of salvation, that you, would see, that you now see Jesus Christ. If you do not know Christ, ask for that. Ask God to change you, to remove the scales, to remove the lens of humanity, of flesh, and to make you see. Because the Pharisees here, I mean, this is a prime example. They knew the law. They knew all things in their day that pertained to religion. Yet they were spiritually dead. They were blind, and we'll see that unfold later as we continue to look at this gospel in the months ahead. But they say here in verse 19, I mean, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Like all unregenerate people, the Pharisees can only think in human terms. They want to they see the father. Well, where is he at? Where is he at? And listen, Jesus does not mince his words when dealing with those that reject him as these men do. We see that here. Jesus answered. He says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Listen, this passage has much to say to other religions that claim to get to God apart from Jesus Christ. I mean, this passage has drastic implications there. Uh, again, J.C. Ryle comments here, and I think it's very helpful. He says, these words teach plainly that ignorance of Christ and ignorance of God are inseparably connected. The man who thinks he knows anything rightly of God while he is ignorant of Christ is completely deceived. The God whom he thinks he knows is not the God of the Bible, but a God of his own fancies invention, end quote. See, there cannot be a relationship with God apart from relationship with Jesus Christ. It's essential. I mean, it is absolutely necessary. See, God the Father has given Jesus Christ full authority, and all must come 
through him to God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5, when writing to young Timothy, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Period. That's it. We must have Jesus. And friends, there is no other way. There's absolutely no other way. This is a, a fundamental truth that cannot be compromised. Jesus is not done, though. Next, he lays out his origin to this group, and his origin also supports this monumental claim that has been declared. Because we see here that Jesus Christ, is, his origin is different than everyone else. Who Jesus is is completely separate from anything and everyone. Look at verse 21 with me. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus is referring here to his death. He's saying, I'm going back to my father, and you can't go there because you continue in sin. Now, this is singular here. The word that he uses is singular. He says you continue in this sin. So what is this particular sin that prohibits them from seeing where Jesus goes? Or, in other words, prevents them from attaining eternal life. Well, it is the sin of unbelief. It is the rejection of Jesus Christ. The sin of unbelief will continue to separate you from God. Belief is the key. It is the way. Belief is essential. Then John references the Jews in this crowd and shows their confusion to what's being said. Remember, there's a, it's not just talking to the Pharisees here. There are other people in this crowd. And so the Jews respond in verse 22. And look at what they say. The Jews said, well, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? I mean, they, they have no idea what's going on. They're, they're like, what is happening here? This back and forth, and Jesus is saying all of these wonderful things, but, like, we just don't get it here. And so then Jesus gives some distinct differences between their origin and his. So look at verse 23. He says, you were from below, or in other words, you were you're earthly, you were, you were human, but I am from above. He says, you are of this world, look there, I am not of this world. I mean, he's saying, like, look, our origins are different. Like, you, you don't understand this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm separate. I'm different in many ways. And, and then he points again to the fact that one must believe that he is God. They, they must believe these truths. There, there's no other way here, friends. 
He says in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. This is plural here, like meaning you'll die in all of your sins. Like your sins will not be forgiven unless, look at what he says in verse 24, for unless you believe that one sin, you need that, you need belief to be freed from sins, plural. Does everybody see that? Just shake your head if you see that. You need that. Your sins will send you straight to hell if you do not believe in Jesus Christ as the substitute for your sins. You must believe. You will continue to sin. There is no perfection in this life. There's no perfection. We will continue to, to struggle and toil and labor and, and fight and make war against our sins. But we should see growth. We should see sanctification. God changes us through the, the Spirit's work, makes us new, renews us, makes us more into the image of Christ. Praise be to God. He doesn't leave us how he found us. That's a good thing. And he points here, he says, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they don't get it. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? <laughs> I mean, I just want you to picture for a moment like this scene. Like try to picture yourself there. This scene where Jesus is saying this, these extraordinary claims here. And this crowd, they just do not understand. You know, most of us would have just walked away. <laughs> We're like, man, I'm, I'm done with this. You guys don't get it. But look at the compassion of our Savior. Uh, friend, if you are here and you're not a Christian, let me just encourage you that uh, you haven't stopped showing up because Jesus loves you. He, he's tender with us. He's compassionate. He, he loves us. He's continuing. You, you hear this message over and over again. And my encouragement once again to you, pray for a heart of belief. Pray. So he says here, Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. In 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So Jesus reminds them that he has much to say, that his message does not change based upon his situation, based upon his audience. He says, I've been saying the same thing, and I'm going to continue to say, guess what? The same thing. I am God. You need God to intervene. And I'm going to continue to walk on mission as the Father has sent me to walk. I will declare what the Father has deemed me to say. I will not deviate from that message. But it's not just about what Jesus has to say. It's about what he is going to do as well, right? Jesus doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk. And brothers and sisters, he, he, he did this for you. This is his active obedience. He would 
make his way to the cross. You know why your sins can be forgiven and you can be deemed as one that is righteous with a robe of righteousness as we read earlier in that prayer of confession in the Valley of Vision? Because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And when he died, he dies for your sin, but he also then gives us his righteousness. It's called the divine exchange. So we walk around with these robes of righteousness that we could not earn. They are alien to us. They are not of us. And this is why. Because Jesus walked a perfect life. So now the exchange, he took our sin, we get his righteousness. Praise be to God. What a beautiful reminder. You are not defined by your mistakes. You were not defined by your past. There's redemption in Christ. Walk in that. Let that free you to live as he's called you to live. Say, I will never go back to that again because I am free. I'm a free man. Walk that way. So look at this destiny of Jesus that affirms his claim here in verses 27 through 30. It says, they did not understand what he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, so he responds, he says, okay, you don't understand? Let me put it this way. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know what, that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Uh, just, I mean, picture this relationship between the father and the son here. I mean, it's a, a beautiful relationship. And we are Trinitarian. The spirit is involved as well, too. Third person of the Trinity, not third in importance, but third in mention. Jesus lets them know that the full disclosure of his claims, what he has said that he is, the, the monumental claim that has been made, his identity will be fully revealed when he is lifted up on the cross of Calvary. D.A. Carson puts it very simply here, and he says the exaltation of Jesus by means of the cross is also the exaltation of Jesus on the cross. See, one of the effects of the cross was to reveal who Jesus was, that his claims were true, that what he said was accurate. It affirms his message. And Jesus knew this. He came to accomplish this. It was his destiny on earth. He knew what he was coming to do. Uh, sometimes if my wife sends me to the store, I get really distracted. And I've told her, don't, just don't send me to the store. Like she'll send me for one thing. I end up spending 100 bucks. I've got a just, you know, cart full of stuff. And some of you probably the same. I, I get really distracted. I, I lose my mission when I'm in the store. 
Jesus was not distracted. He did not let the distractions around him, the unbelief of the crowd, the opposition. Scripture tells us that even the pain that he knew he would endure was not a detraction. It did not take away from his mission. He went to the cross knowing what was ahead. So, I mean, this is months before Jesus dies, and he's saying, I'm going to a cross. I'm going to die a miserable death. I will be lifted up. It's my destiny. I've accepted this. And you will understand the claims that I'm making then. And then in verse 30, John just continues to remind us of his thesis statement of this gospel. The point of this is what? That you may believe. So he continues to drop these little nuggets of belief throughout this entire thing. Look here in verse 30 again. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. See, again we see that people respond to Jesus with belief, but some don't. We looked at that a little bit last week, that doctrine divides, truth divides. Either on one side or the other. When Jesus talks, when God's word speaks, it causes division. You're either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. Now listen, if you're walking in darkness, there's hope. Repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. I want to give us a couple of questions and applications as we close our time and uh, just take a moment to respond to this. I mean, simply, do you walk in the light or do you walk in darkness? Very simple question. Very simple question to ponder for us all. I mean, if you claim to follow the light, or in other words, claim to be a Christian, what does your daily walk with Jesus look like? Even more, if if I were to ask the people closest to you that see you, what would they say? Or even deeper, if I were to get into your private life, the things that people don't see, would we be able to tell that you walk in light? Or do you walk in darkness? Do you draw near to the light daily? Do you draw near to Jesus? Do you ask Jesus to expose you on a daily basis, getting closer to the light so you can be known by God, that he can reveal the things in your life that need to be exposed and then changed? Is the light something you just occasionally visit here and there where you are, when you are in need of a dose of illumination? 
Do you treat Jesus like you treat the flashlight on your phone? You know it's accessible, but you only use it when it's necessary. You know, times are hard. You're having a rough day and someone's getting on your nerves. Maybe you just go to the light when you, you're having financial hardships. Maybe when you're feeling sick or a family member is ill. What does your daily walk with Jesus look like? Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not an optional feature to our lives. We cannot maintain function or survive without daily fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. We need it. And Christians, I want you to ponder this question as well. Do you understand the great love of Jesus for you? Do you understand the great love of Christ? Do you understand the immense love that Jesus has that he would come and he would rescue you from darkness? Like, listen, none of us started off all right. I know that's not a popular view in the world we live in today, but none of us were born good. We weren't starting off on a good leg. We were born in darkness and sin. But Jesus Christ, he came and delivered you delivered me, redeemed us. I mean, I want you to see, I want you to ponder this great love. I pray that you understand this. I pray you understand that Jesus Christ, the light, came into the darkness to redeem you, and he did this not because he has to. God is no man's debtor. He did this because he wanted to. He did this because he loves each and one and every one of his children. When we understand this great love for which he loved us, it will compel us to know more of him. It will compel us to draw near to the light as much as we can. So take a moment, respond. I'm going to invite the band to come to the stage. And I just want to give you a moment of reflection. If you've written down some questions and if you're not a believer, I want to encourage you, just talk to the Lord right now. Ask God to open your eyes, soften your heart. Repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll give you a moment to respond and then I'll pray for us and then we will sing a song of praise. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I pray that this time would be encouraging to those that may feel 
unloved, maybe doubting salvation. Pray, Father, that you would encourage them, you would strengthen them, they would see Christ's work on their behalf, and that it would compel them to a life of righteousness, that we would be a people that walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. I pray for those that are struggling in their marriages, those that are struggling in their daily life, just making ends meet. I pray, Father, that you would heal and work in the way that only you can do. And I pray that we would give you the glory because of it. Pray for those that may be lost. I pray that you would save sinners today. They would respond to this message that Jesus is their only hope in this world of darkness. That they can have eternal light now and forever. And I pray all of this in our Savior's name. Amen.